Anya Parmpil, on December 12th and 13th, you were inside a federal courthouse in Miami, Florida, to cover the trial of Alex Saab, a Venezuelan who has been extradited to the U.S. and is now being prosecuted. Who is Alex Saab and why was it important for you to cover this trial? What are the stakes? Alex Saab is, depending on who you ask or which media outlet you're reading, either presented as a Colombian businessman or a Venezuelan diplomat. And he's actually both. He was born in Colombia and was born to Lebanese and Palestinian parents in 1971. His father happened to run the major textile, one of the major textile companies in Colombia, and th was a, came, he, as a result, he came from a very wealthy family, had a knack for business at a young age, got involved in the family business at 19, and then eventually, as the political situation in Venezuela, neighboring Venezuela, was changing, and Chavez, Hugo Chavez, was ushering in the Bolivarian Revolution after 1998 and throughout the early 2000s. The Colombian business class, much of the Colombian business class, uh, stopped doing business, uh, stopped uh, trading and, and engaging with the Venezuelan government, and Saab saw an opportunity and essentially set up an import-export business made most of his money in Venezuela with that company as someone who just was willing uh, to work with this government that was uh, largely demonized in the region. And so he's been living in Venezuela since 2004. He eventually became a naturalized citizen and eventually also became more closely aligned and involved with the Venezuelan government. He was eventually given contracts to build their social housing projects and then that was in 2011 and then afterwards in 2015 was given was given some of the early contracts to uh, secure goods for the clap box boxes that the Venezuelan government uh, delivers to Venezuelan families on a monthly basis household supplies cleaning goods uh, I'm giving a really summarized uh, explanation of what clap is because it's not necessarily important to the question of who Saab is Ultimately, in April of 2018, Venezuela appointed him a special envoy of its government so that he could continue to make business deals, negotiate business deals on behalf of the Venezuelan government at a time when the United States was increasing its international sanctions regime against the Venezuelan government. So they understood that because Saab was going out making deals with the particularly the Iranian governments and the Turkish governments, uh, that he would fall under intense scrutiny. He was repeatedly denounced by the United States because of someone who was working to subvert uh, unilateral U.S. sanctions pressure. He was seen as uh, violating and enabling Venezuela to uh, violate and get around the these the, the sanctions. And so... He was given this diplomatic status, and uh, two years later, in June of 2020, while he was en route to Iran as part of this special mission, uh, he had to stop to refuel his jet in the archipelago island nation of Cabo Verde on the east, on the west coast of, of Africa. And uh, while he was uh, refueling his jet, 
uh, Cape Verdean authorities demanded he get off the plane and they tried to process him through immigration, which was not originally even part of his plan. And it came out that there was a sealed indictment in the United States and Kate Baird was acting on what they claimed was an Interpol red notice uh, issued for Saab's arrest. It came out later that the Interpol uh, Interpol red notice was actually issued the following day after his arrest, which was why the uh, local uh, economic community of West African courts uh, in Africa actually ruled his detention was illegal and demanded he be released. So, Ultimately, he was extradited to the United States in October of, 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 of 2021 on money laundering charges. There were initially seven charges. Six of them have been thrown out. Only the conspiracy charge remains. Essentially, uh, any law student will tell you that's because conspiracy is the easiest charge to pursue uh, in, in a U.S. court. And so... Uh, this trial or the the hearing that I actually attended last week was not on the money laundering count, but a pretrial hearing to determine whether or not diplomatic immunity applies in Saab's case because his lawyers have asked for the entire case to be thrown out due to the fact that according to the 1961 Vienna Diplomatic Convention, uh, Saab, any prosecution, any arrest of Saab is illegal according to international law because he should be uh, allowed diplomatic immunity. So I went uh, to go cover this trial, which is uh, very central to uh, my coverage of Venezuela that I've, I've been uh, focused on since 2019, since the initiation of uh, Trump's recognition of, of Juan Guaido. And also because of the implications for international law. This is a case on par, for example, with that of Julian Assange in, in the United Kingdom, where, where uh, if he's extradited to the United States and prosecuted, the implications for free speech, I believe, would be on the level of what the implications for international diplomatic law are in Saab's case. So it sounds like the U.S., as in the case of Julian Assange has essentially captured a non-citizen and is prosecuting him for violating laws that the U.S. is attempting to impose across the globe, which are not international law, and thereby shifting the para legal parameters that pertain to, as in Assange's case, publishing, in this case, diplomacy, but what do they want out of Alex Saab? What why is what are they what have they been trying to get out of him? Well, we should be clear the charges that Saab or the charge, we should specify the charge Saab currently faces in the US are not in any way related to the CLAP program or any of his more recent work with the Venezuelan government. Uh, they are related to the social housing program charges at bank account uh, because those are the only charges that actually uh, financial charges that were processed in U.S. financial institutions. So they have something to even bring in as evidence, even though uh, Saab's lawyer lawyers will tell you that the payments and the question of uh, money laundering or conspiracy uh, are based on payments that are very easily explained away. They were they say uh, payments that were made for his credit cards and payments that were made uh, so that his son could uh, 
pay for an apartment in Los Angeles. So the 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 they're kind of getting him on these technical uh, transactions just in order to bring him into the United States and have him under uh, U.S. authority and now prosecuting U.S. court. And of course, there's a lot in the media that is focused on. They, they throw a lot of other accusations out there about corruption and money laundering and whether he's a DEA informant or whether or not he is part of a wider network of criminality. That's the kind of case that you get or that you read about in the media. But the actual charges are not even related to that or the singular charge is not related to that. Well, it seems to me that they've been targeting Saab because he knows how sanctions are being evaded and they want to gain this information so they can go after the big dogs. Well, he is the big dog. He was the one that, you know, when when he was brokering these deals on behalf of the Venezuelan government, uh, for example, uh, people may recall that in spring of 2020, there were five Iranian oil tankers that arrived in Venezuela, and it was this major triumphant moment for the Venezuelan Iranian governments. Venezuela was in the midst of a fuel crisis brought on by U.S. sanctions. People will say, how is the country with the world's greatest oil supply going through a fuel shortage? Well, yes, Venezuela has the largest crude reserves in the world, but it's heavy crude. It, 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 they need light crude and other chemical inputs to actually dilute what they can pump out of their ground or even get it moving and then convert it into fuel that is combustible for engines and for automobiles. So yeah, they have this fuel, but because US companies that traditionally sold Venezuela these products and European companies were no longer able to sell as a result of sanctions, they lost everything that they needed to process and treat their oil. And so Iran stepped in and, and sent Venezuela the supplies that it needed and broke the the siege, really, of Venezuela. The Trump administration even sent a naval ship uh, to the Caribbean Sea. As these tankers from Iran arrived in 2020, the U.S. sent a naval ship uh, in order to intimidate and send a message that they were potentially going to act or to, in order to enforce the economic siege of Venezuela. But the, the tankers arrived and Venezuela was able to double its oil output the following year. And so this was something Alex Saab was responsible for. And part of the evidence that we reviewed in court, which I wrote about at the gray zone that was presented in court, was actually um, letters that the night before, according to Saab's bodyguard who testified, the night before he was arrested in Cape Verde, President Maduro had a meeting at the presidential palace in Caracas with Saab and several Iranian diplomats stationed in Caracas. Afterwards, President Maduro gave uh, three documents, sealed documents, to Saab's bodyguard and asked him to deliver them to Saab so that Saab could uh, deliver them to the intended recipients. And those intended recipients happened to be the Ayatollah in Iran, as well as a, the Iranian agricultural minister and a, a, an advisor to the Iranian vice president. These were letters sent by President Maduro to the Ayatollah and from Venezuelan vice president Delcy Rodriguez to the two other officials. And uh, Saab was entrusted with carrying these documents as part of his mission to Venezuela, uh, to Iran, par uh, representing Venezuela. And he was carrying those documents according to his bodyguard in a, 
they were sealed in his briefcase in his hand when he boarded the plane to Iran uh, in June of 2020. Uh, then he was arrested immediately uh, afterwards and all of his possessions were seized. It came out in the court as well uh, through the testimony of one of Saab's lawyers in Cape Verde that those letters had actually been opened, removed from the briefcase, placed in another uh, suitcase altogether, and that the seal on the letters had actually been broken. And he was quite surprised uh, when we were listening to his testimony, when he was recalling the feeling of, of finding these letters, realizing that they had been uh, diplomatic correspondence between the Venezuelan government and the Iranian government that they'd been opened. We don't know who opened them. We just know that uh, someone who had access to them after uh, Cape Verdean authorities seized them, opened them. And so in those letters, they were talking about these exact issues, the question of, of oil, uh, increasing oil capacity and uh, or exchange of oil and trade between Iran and other issues pertaining to food and, and strengthening relations between the two countries. So there in that sense, there was no question, at least, that he was on a diplomatic mission when he was arrested, which his lawyers say is the crux of their argument that diplomatic immunity should apply in this case. So Alex Saab was at the fulcrum point of the diplomatic and economic resistance that saw Iran go over 5,000 miles across the globe to deliver crucial oil supplies to Venezuela and break not just the U.S. siege, but to disrupt U.S. hegemony over the globe. And I think that really speaks to the significance of this case. Are there any other scenes in the courtroom that stuck out to you? And I think there were some remarkable exchanges between the judge and Saab's defense team today, December 20th. I don't know if you want to go into that. Yes, unfortunately, I was not there today, which was when the prosecution and defense lawyers delivered their oral arguments, their final argument in this in the evidentiary hearing. And we got to see more of what the judge was thinking because he he remained quite neutral and measured throughout uh, the the hearing. Uh, but today we got to see a little bit more where he's coming from. So I didn't get to actually witness this. I'm going based off of uh, a conversation that I had with Leonardo Flores, friend of the Gray Zone. He, you can see some of his writings. He's he's put up on our site before, and also uh, tweets from uh, the Associated Press reporter Joshua Goodman, who is in the court. And what stuck out to me was that it sounded like though school Scala J Judge Robert Scala he didn't. He did say that he's going to rule by the end of the year. He didn't make a decision today, but he made it pretty clear that this is. A political case and even suggested that ultimately the State Department would have a decision to and and, and, and how to rule on this case because he was he was for the first time really drawing uh, uh, dr drilling home the fact that the United States government does not recognize the Maduro government and so how can we recognize Alex Saab as a diplomat if we don't even recognize the government that he's been appointed to represent, which was not a question that was actually brought up really throughout the two weeks of, of evidentiary hearing that we had last week. We weren't discussing, we weren't hearing any arguments about who was the government of Venezuela or who was the rightful, who represented the rightful government of Venezuela. This is something that Judge Scala decided to bring up today.
and apparently even brought up the question, uh, this hypothetical scenario where he was saying that Saab's diplomatic status was akin to if Donald Trump, after not recognizing the results of the 2020 election, had appointed himself president and then appointed himself, gone to Iran and was based on the fact that he'd uh, declared himself president, claiming that he had some sort of immunity so that the United States would have no recourse to receive him. A very strange hypothetical scenario because like, none of that would even make sense or like, it doesn't have, make sense that Trump would go to Iran even if that were going to be uh, something that he did. I mean, it's just absurd. But beyond that, if according to his metaphor, if we're up to apply the meta- his metaphor to this scenario, first of all, Guaido is the individual who declared themselves president, not President Maduro. And more importantly, in his scenario, Trump wouldn't have the ability to issue any diplomatic passport or appoint anybody uh, uh, as a diplomat, um, even if he wanted to, because he didn't control the State Department or any government agency, regardless of his own view of the 2020 election. That's not the case in Venezuela. Maduro is the only president with the capacity to print a diplomatic passport uh, because he controls every aspect of how you would define a government, whether it's the borders, the government ministries. However, the judge rules there will be an appeal, whether from the U.S. DOJ or from Saab's defense team. The judge said today, Judge Scola said he would rule before the end of the year. Do you have any indication of how this might go? I mean, I can't make a prediction, but it's pretty clear based on what he said, if he's suggesting that the State Department has a say that this is a political case and it's not about which countries have the right to appoint diplomats or whether or not sovereign countries have the right to appoint diplomats, who is a diplomat according to Venezuelan law. These are the questions that we were hearing throughout the evidentiary hearing, uh, that we were hearing arguments related to throughout the uh evidentiary hearing but now that's not the questions that he's asking and it suggests that he would uh, rule uh, that diplomatic immunity doesn't apply here i mean it's, it's amazing that a federal judge or anyone in the u.s would still consider juan guaido to be the president of venezuela when he controls nothing Nicolas Maduro controls the foreign ministry and all of the consular functions of the Venezuelan government to be able to confer diplomatic status. Juan Guaido can't even confer. Uh, he has he has no authority. But that's this is because the State Department of Joe Biden, led by Anthony Blinken, veteran regime changer, still considers Juan Guaido the president. So we're going to continue following this case at the gray zone. We're going to talk more with Anya at the gray zone and others following this case. Um, So we will be back.